Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, August 6th. In today's news, teleprompter Trump repudiates Twitter Trump. A transnational community mourns across an international border, and the president escalates the trade war with China again. But first, the big idea. The United States continues to employ a staggering arsenal of armed forces, unmanned drones, intelligence agencies, and sweeping domestic authorities to contain a threat, Islamist terrorism, that has claimed about 100 lives on American soil since the nation mobilized after the September 11th attacks. No remotely comparable array of national power has been directed against the threat now emerging from the far right, a loose but lethal collection of ideologies whose adherents have killed roughly the same number of people in the U.S. post-9-11 as al-Qaeda and the Islamic State combined. The disparity is a source of growing alarm for officials and experts, some of whom now say the United States is overdue for a realignment of national security priorities as violence on the far right escalates. The 22 people killed in El Paso this weekend extended a series of at least five fatal attacks over the past year, directed at targets selected for racial or religious reasons, including shootings at synagogues in San Diego and Pittsburgh. Remember, 9-11 was preceded by a series of smaller al-Qaeda attacks. There were other unaddressed alarm bells about the group as well. Analysts point to those to warn current officials about the danger of inaction. The grim statistics associated with these two strains of extremism have begun to converge. The number of people killed in attacks linked to Islamist radicals or the far right in the U.S. since 2002 are now virtually identical, 104 versus 109, respectively, according to new data compiled by the think tank New America. The prospects for a change in course, however, appear limited, complicated by legal constraints, toxic American political currents, and the amorphous nature of an adversary that has no discernible structure or Osama bin Laden-like leader and has burrowed into corners of the internet the way al-Qaeda once hid in the mountain redoubts of Afghanistan. Lisa Monaco, who served as the top counterterrorism advisor to President Barack Obama, told my colleague Greg Miller for a piece on this yesterday that protecting the public from the most pressing terrorist threat has been our governing principle for many years now. Given the surge in attacks linked to the far right, she says we need to prioritize our resources and focus on this threat. In some ways, however, the opposite has occurred under President Trump. Last year, the administration downgraded the position that Monaco previously held, meaning that the top counterterrorism advisor in the White House no longer reports directly to the president for the first time since 9-11. This administration has also curtailed or disbanded a Department of Homeland Security program that countered violent extremism by identifying those vulnerable to radicalization, whether by Islamist groups or the far right. Even as the FBI has finally belatedly turned greater attention to domestic threats, federal investigators lack some of the legal tools that they have to combat Islamist terrorism. In cases involving al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, federal prosecutors can turn to a statute that makes it illegal to provide any, quote, material support, such as money or training, to a designated foreign terrorist group. There is no comparable statute for domestic groups such as far-right radical extremists. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, speaking yesterday in the diplomatic reception room of the White House, Trump spoke of the inherent worth and dignity of every human life and the scourge of destructive partisanship. 
His unifying message stood in stark contrast to more than two and a half years of name-calling, demonizing minorities, and inflaming racial animus, much of it carried out over Twitter. As White House officials privately scrambled to plan a visit for Trump later this week to El Paso and Dayton, the other site of a mass shooting this weekend, the president found himself unwelcome in the grieving Texas border city. Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, the Democrat who replaced Beto O'Rourke last year, whose district includes the El Paso Walmart involved in the massacre, urged the president and his team to consider the fact that his words and his actions have played a role in this. Senior policy advisor Stephen Miller at the White House led the effort to write Trump's speech, with four or five other people pitching in. The group consulted previous speeches that the president has given following tragedies, including after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville left one dead, and after that 2017 mass shooting at a country music festival in Las Vegas left 59 dead. Trump spent part of the weekend complaining to allies and members of his golf club in New Jersey about media coverage that seemed to blame him for the shootings. But two people who talked with the president said he wasn't visibly upset or as one described it, at a nuclear level over it. With the nation in shock and so many Americans feeling a sense of despair, really, and hopelessness, the president's language was prepared to fit the moment. He has been given appropriate words at other times in his presidency to deliver from teleprompters, often with minimal emotion. It's what presidents are expected to do. What this president does before and after those moments is the real issue. Absent from the president's remarks on Monday was any note of self-reflection. Number two, El Paso has always lived and loved in two countries. Now the community is forced to grieve that way as well. On a clear day, you can see Mexico from the Walmart where the shooting happened. Now, funeral homes in El Paso and Juarez, the larger sister city long racked by hundreds of murders a year, are offering free services for the victims of the massacre. Mexicans and Americans are huddling over the burials, the medical bills, the prosecution, the aftermath of what some people consider an act of war on the United States. On the border, it is normal for an Irish-American soccer coach named Steve Donnelly to speak fluent Spanish. It's also normal for a Latina named Felicity Randall a 17-year-old soccer champ, to speak no Spanish because her family speaks English at home. What's not normal is what happened Saturday at Walmart. This coming weekend is a sales tax holiday in Texas. Those who gathered at the makeshift shrine the day after the killings said perhaps the only fortunate aspect of the tragedy is that the shooter didn't arrive next weekend, which would have been far busier, and perhaps the massacre would have been much deadlier. Sadly, though, We learned yesterday that two people who were shot in El Paso succumbed to their wounds. Authorities released the names of all 22 victims. David Johnson was at the Walmart checkout line with his wife Kathy and their nine-year-old granddaughter when the shooting began. When he was hit, the Army veteran fell forward to protect them. Kathy and the child were able to escape, but David died. Javier Martinez was among the youngest killed. He was 15. He was two weeks away from starting his sophomore year of high school. He also loved to play soccer. Number three, looking to the world stage, the Treasury Department designated China a currency manipulator last night after the country allowed its tightly controlled currency, the yuan, to slide to an 11-year low against the dollar. The move is 
a largely symbolic slap at Beijing that's likely to deepen the growing animosity between the two trading partners. It requires Treasury only to initiate consultations with China. Beijing has long denied U.S. accusations that it keeps its currency undervalued to make its products more competitive on world markets. Some analysts are beginning to fear a U.S.-China currency war, however. Analysts and economists fear that both countries will suffer. The depreciation in China's currency means American manufacturers will have a harder time selling their products to China and in other markets where Chinese producers compete, further widening the nation's trade deficit. But the most dangerous potential consequence of a currency battle would be a slowing of overall economic growth in, again, both countries, at a time when analysts already fear a global slowdown could push the U.S. into a recession. For its part, China retaliated last night by suspending the purchase of U.S. agricultural products in response to Trump's new 10% tariffs on $300 billion of Chinese goods. And Wall Street, in response to all of this that's going on, had its worst day of 2019. Gold prices, a barometer of fear, jumped. The Japanese yen and Swiss franc long safe harbors advanced. Investors also flocked to the safety of the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, evidence of a loss of faith in stocks altogether. Notably, the volatility index, VIX, soared 30%. Investors are buckling up for what they expect will be a rough ride ahead. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, August 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.